You're listening to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session on hypertension from the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians, or ACOFP. Speaking is Dr. Anthony Brown, Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. So let's talk about treatment. So the, the, the mantra really is just get the blood pressure down. There's multiple papers, societies, etc., cetera, uh, that conclude that it's really the amount of blood pressure reduction and not really the choice of the drug. Uh, now, that's assuming they don't have compelling indications, and I'll just mention a few as we go on here. There are several trials, uh, the ASCOT, HOPE, Europa, and the VALUE trial, and, and really there was some differences here, but in every case th- th- it was because you had better blood pressure reduction. So if you get better blood pressure reduction, then there, the outcome's different. But assuming it was close, there was no difference. Five large population studies, and they wanted to know just mild changes in blood pressure. What if you just change the blood pressure two to five millimeters of mercury? You still get nice reduction in stroke and nice reduction in coronary heart disease. So we're not talking big numbers here. So if you could shift that curve a little bit to the left, you're still lowering the risk. Okay. Um, this is what's been planted all over since, what, 2003, the, the uh, JNC-7, on their recommendation for treatment. After lifestyle modifications, if you have compelling indications, use the drug that shows evidence. If your pressure is less than 160 over 100, have at it. Take a, take a pick. It's really a diuretic, ACE, ARB, calcium channel. That's what was in the JNC-7. And then if it's over 160, over 100, that's where you should be using combination therapy or at least two drugs. Treatment goals still, you know, 150 over 90 if you don't have complications. Um, in, in CKD and diabetes, we're still kind of trying to get the 130 over 80, but that may be loosening a little bit. But for now, th- that's kind of where we're shooting for. These are some of the compelling uh, indications for drug classes. So if you have heart failure, you can actually use any of those. If you have uh, uh, diabetes, you want to try to get it on ACE or an ARB, uh, CKD, ACE or an ARB. Uh, if you have uh, stroke, a diuretic, and an ACE. So these are some things that you might, you might want to use right up front, coronary disease beta blockers. So try to fix that first. And assuming that's not there, then we'll talk about some other indications. Now, Remind your patients, here is a multitude of studies that show it requires about 2.7 meds to get most of these patients under control. So I tell them right up front, I mean, two may be, in most of those studies, there's not one that's under two medications. Most are pushing three. So they may need a combination ACE, ARB, I'm sorry, uh, ACE diuretic and maybe a calcium or something else. But I think if they know that up front, you'll be able to sell it to them later on. Part of the problem with previous aggressive monotherapy, when you increase these doses, you get more side effects, then they stop the drug, and why am I taking this? I don't have any symptoms anyway. And you get this vicious uh, cycle here. So 
there's a push away from one drug going to the max and start adding some other drugs in. So it, it looks like combination therapy probably is practical and it's necessity. Um, the other advantage to it is, it, it, first of all, you get, your, you get your blood pressure controlled easier and quicker. And then there's some other groups that start coming in, uh, the African-American population, which may not respond that well to an ACE, but you throw the diuretic in, all of a sudden they're responding. And you throw the calcium channel in, with it, they're responding pretty nice with it. And it looks like the side effect profile may be better. Just a, a comment or two on uh, the ACCOMPLISH trial, which was back in 2008. They looked at ele- over 11,000 patients, and these patients were at high risk for a cardiovascular event. They were re- randomized to either uh, an ACE and an amlodipine, ACE and uh, ACTZ, and then they followed it. And at least in this study, the ACE calcium channel blocker had uh, superior results, as far as statistically significant, at least, compared to the ACE and the diuretic. Now, I'm not telling you to change it. So the, the questions that came out are ACE and calcium channel. Is that preferred? Should be switched? No. Keep doing what you're doing, because here's the latest recommendations, at least in the last year, from the American Society of Hypertension. And really, it, I, like, I kind of like this because he puts things, but preferred here. So basically an ACE or an ARB, throw in a diuretic or a calcium channel blocker. That's kind of the first line if you're going to use uh, for combined therapy. And then acceptable are some other things. As of last year, this was the one that was just taken off the market, the Aliskirin Valsartan, which you shouldn't be using anymore. So there's very little indications now for ACEs and ARBs together, Aliskirin and an ACE or an ARB. So those are kind of things you probably shouldn't be using anymore unless they have heavy proteinuria. That's where I would get involved, and and I may want to get someone's protein down. There's some evidence in heart failure that the combination may work, but just be careful with those combinations. So I actually took it off here because even as of a year, year and a half ago, that was recommended in there. Um, Just a little comment. What's all the beef here about chlorthalidone? Um, Chlorthalidone is making a comeback. This is a distal diuretic. It is a thiazide, but it's very potent. And uh, there's a new med now um, out that has chlorthalidone. One of the first med that's out that actually has chlorthalidone in it. Um, It's one and a half to two times more potent than hydrochlorothiazide. Longer duration of action. That's why it may work better. So it's actually working at least 24 hours. Part of the problem, though, is low potassium. 7-8% 7-8% will drop their potassium. You're going to have to be careful who you use it on. Uh, and all the previous studies were done with chlorthalidone, not hydrochlorothiazide. We all got in a habit, and we all, most of us still use hydrochlorothiazide. But some believe this is becoming the agent of choice because of longer acting, a little better control. So if you use 12.5 chlorthalidone, it's 25 hydrochlorothiazide. That's the way to look at these. Um, now, if I have, you know, an 80-year-old woman and I, I really not, I'm worried about hypokalemia, and then I may go with, stay with the 12.5-hydrochlorothiazide. So uh, there's, there are still times to use this. You don't have to abandon hydrochlorothiazide, but there's a lot of stuff coming out now on the use of chlorthalidone. What are clues, though, that you may have to switch to a higher dose of diuretic or to chlorthalidone? Well, if they're in a high-sodium intake... Um, the size of the patient sometimes matters if they have swelling. 
If you check a renin, a plasma renin, it should be up in a diuretic. So if it's still down, that means you're not squeezing them enough. Uh, if you don't see, not that you want to see, but if you don't see a little bump in BUN creatinine or the uric acid, again, it may not be enough. And then chronic kidney disease. So second case, 55-year-old man with chronic resistant hypertension. He's taken lisinopril, chlorthalidone, amlodipine, and metoprolol. He drinks three to four drinks per week. He tries to restrict his salt. He snores, denies hypersomnolence or headaches. His wife's unaware of apnea. His pressure is 160 over 90. Uh, he's obese. He's a plus one edema. Creatinine's normal. Potassium's low normal. Your analysis is okay. So which of the following is most correct? His alcohol intake is likely contributing to his resistant hypertension. His chlorthalidone should be replaced by furosemide. Sleep test would be positive. Sleep test not indicated. Yeah, you should do, probably do a sleep study on this guy. He, there's no indication to switch to Lasix. I mean, he's on chlorthalidone. Uh, his K is already on the low side. Uh, or you could push the dose. I don't, I don't have a dose in here. Now, here's, let me just comment. Everybody jumped on the bandwagon for obstructive sleep apnea, which we all do. So his alcohol, he's only three to four drinks per week. You know, two a day. So alcohol really is not uh, the, the, the culprit in this gentleman. So 10 grams is one drink, 20 grams is two. So under, under two drinks a day, you really don't change your, uh, your risk. But look at the prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea and resistant hypertension. Pretty darn high. You're in the 80, 85% range with two separate studies. So if we come back to the question, now we're going to come back. Um, so what happens, he, he goes for a sleep study, he, he does have moderate sleep apnea, he starts his CPAP, and he comes back two months later. He sleeps well, he says it's working, uh, he still takes his lisinopril, chlorthalidone, amlodipine, and metoprolol. His pressure is, uh, instead of 160 over 90, it's 157 over 88. So what do you do now? Um, put him on spironolactone, exercise, we should do that. Refer back to the sleep clinic to adjust his CPAP because you don't think it's working. ENT eval or long-acting diltiazem. I, I think we all would jump on the CPAP thing, say, ah, it's not working, and, and boy, sleep apnea is a very common cause of resistant hypertension. The problem is the effect is really modest on treated sleep apnea. You're only getting two three millimeters of mercury down. Now, I'm not telling you you should treat the sleep apnea because of other side effects, but, but don't expect these big changes which we are all hoping for. So in this case, there's a relationship between sleep apnea and aldosterone. And what it looks like in most of these, a lot of these patients, the 24-hour urine aldo is high and the serum aldo is high. So these patients act hyperaldol. So go back to that same question. So really the answer for that, besides weight, you know, having them exercise and maybe fix this, but the real answer is get them started on something else. He's already on, uh, he was on four drugs. So, and, and one of them, uh, you know, so he needs something else. So I'm going to give you some data on spironolactone uh, for treatment of resistant hypertension. So this was the, the trial where they looked at spironolactone in resistant hypertension. 
And they took uh, 19,000 patients and they split them. Some got an ACE and an ARB, um, an ACE and an, uh, and a calcium channel. Other got a beta and a diuretic. Then they added an alpha. And then by the time they got to a fourth drug, then they added spironolactone. But wait till you see some of the results here. By just adding that, the, the mean fall with one drug, 25 milligrams of spironolactone, is 150s to 135s. So the average here is 22 over 9. Not bad. Which leads me into just a little spiel here on resistant hypertension. Um, because you're going to start seeing more of that. And, and I see a lot of it because I'm seeing the ones that you people go, have gone through. They're on three drugs, and I'm seeing trying to figure it out. But it's estimated now that about 2% of patients with hypertension after about a year or two may have resistant. And so you're going to be seeing much more of this in the primary care clinics. The definition you need to know is three blood pressure drugs. One has to be a diuretic. Okay? That's one of the most common things I see that they think it's resistant, but it's not. So I see people on three drugs and one's not a diuretic. So I'll remove one and come up with a diuretic and, and now all of a sudden you start seeing a little better blood pressure control. And, and the other drugs have to have complementary modes of action. So it, it can't be uh, doxazosin and clonidine, two alpha blockers, even though they work a little differently, so you want to avoid that. And ACIN and ARB, yeah, a little more blood pressure, but uh, so, so you want to have things that complementary actions. So a little busy, but the reason I just put here, we're gonna, which is going to lead to the next segment here, this is resistant hypertension. Uh, you confirm the diagnosis, you exclude pseudo-resistance, identify some c contributing lifestyle factors, you get rid of some of the interfering substances if they're on uh, things that are raising their blood pressure, uh, we'll rule out secondary hypertension, but then down here, again, maximize their diuretic if you can, and this is where spironolactone is going to come in. And just a plug here for renal patients, hydrochlorothiazide and chlorothaladone. When you get a GFR under 30, so most creatinines, if you're two or better, they don't work as well when your GFR gets below 30. So if you get below 30, and again, if they're at 28, you know, but when they're starting to get there and they're going down, you probably need to go to either lace, uh, distal, uh, a loop diuretic or like a metolazone, a little more potent diuretic. This is just a mechanistic look when you look at how you're going to, when you see these patients. So you're going to give them something for volume and you're going to have something to block the, block the RAS system. And then after that, if they're still not controlled, you're going to try to optimize diuretic. And if, there's, if, it's still, if that's optimized, then you may want to come in with a beta or calcium channel blocker because sympathetic nervous system is still an important cause of elevated blood pressure. But if you get down here, this is sort of what's becoming, this is what I do when you send me those patients, is for, kind of the fourth line, maybe third, but in the fourth line, I'm grabbing for a spironolactone. Um, as I'm doing other studies, but I'm, I'm looking at that. Now, this is, a, is, is a, a number of studies confirming what we saw before. It, it shows studies on the top here, the percent in blood pressure with just spironolactone. And you're talking 25 over 12. These are huge numbers with 25 milligrams of spironolactone. A plerinone kind of does the same thing. I'm not giving it, but spironolactone is dirt cheap. Uh, you know, for four dollars, you can get it for four dollars a month. 
there are some side effects to be aware of. Hyperkalemia, uh, breast tenderness is not uncommon. Uh, so, uh, and some, a little bit of ED uh, you may get hit with. The plerinone doesn't have as, has very little of that side effect, but again, it's more, uh, it's more expensive. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Browns Nation after a short break. <laughs> 